I'm Sterling Fox, joined on the line by Professor Michael Jenkin from the Department of Electrical Engineering and Computer Science at York University and his teammate, Professor Lawrence Harris from the Department of Psychology at York University. The two of these guys, along with several others, have been working on a project on virtual reality technology, and they claim that the future of this technology may lie in understanding how older people perceive motion. Professors Jenkin and Harris, good morning, gentlemen, and welcome. Good morning. Good morning. Michael, tell us about this uh, virtual technology project, first of all. What are we dealing with, and and what are you, uh, and and Lawrence, I'm really looking forward to your uh, angle on this story, but Michael, you're the engineer, and it's it's about virtual reality, so set it up for us in terms of what you were trying to understand, uh, and we'll take it from there. Sure. So virtual reality tries to present an alternative reality to the wearer, the viewer of the technology. So we try to make you think you're somewhere else. Okay. And to do that, we have to provide cues, perceptual cues, that, that mirror that other reality we're trying to show. So if, for example, you're trying to make someone think they're driving a car or <clears throat> operating a, a jet fighter or something, you want them to think that they're moving just like they would if they were in the real place. Sure. And so the <clears throat> most of the work that's been done has been done with oh, 20-year-olds, right? Because that's the, the group of people you could get to be subjects and they're interested in the technology. But if we want to use VR more generally for the rest of the population, we really need to know how that the responses that 20-year-olds have in VR, how those change if you're four or 95. Exactly. And that's what the, this particular project was looking at. Interesting stuff. So now virtual reality, of course, is what you when you put on this wearable device that kind of looks like ski goggles in some cases, <laughs> uh, and they have the headset and the whole bit. And, and I know that you did, uh, you went to the Ontario Science Center and you got uh, hundreds and hundreds of volunteers to sit down, put on these virtual reality goggles, and, and, and then and go through the same experience. First of all, were they sitting down when they went through this? Yes. So that, that's, a, that's a very interesting thing about, about VR. Often we only simulate a very small set of the cues that you might normally receive. <clears throat> so if you're you know, uh, flying, a, uh, flying a jet fighter in VR, you're probably not actually moving like you would in a jet fighter. You're sitting in a chair or maybe you're is <clears throat> um, sitting in some very small device that moves a, a little bit. And so the cues aren't absolutely perfect. Right? And there's a question about whether or not they have to be absolutely perfect, but they, in our particular case, they were sitting down even though they were being uh, simulated uh, to move in a forward direction. Interesting. Professor Harris, uh, it's probably a pretty safe thing to say that people who design new technology, particularly for popular consumption, are probably targeting that uh, group in our uh, population that is most likely to run out and buy the newest shiny designer object, that is the 18 to 24-year-olds. And so as as a psychologist, when you study all of this and, and how a technology designed for younger more, shall we say, agile minds can apply equally effectively to people from a completely different age group. Yes, well, I, I don't know if it's really aimed at just that particular group. 
um, the, the gaming market is, where they actually want to play games sure. and that sort of thing. But the technology itself is so flexible, so um, applicable to so many different situations that uh, it's really not appropriate to just market it to that one um, group. It's a little bit like television. You know, there are different age groups look at television in different in different ways sure. and get different things out of it. Uh, but it's the same technology that can be used. You know, you could use that for gaming as well. That sort of thing. And in fact, in older people now, uh, there is quite a strong um, application uh, for for virtual reality. Many old people's homes actually provide virtual reality systems for their for their um, housebound uh, guests there, and uh, and able to gives them to marvelous experiences that they can have uh, while sitting in an old person's home. So Interesting. There, and there are so many applications. I was about to ask you about that, Lawrence Harris, because, uh, you know, um, beyond gaming and all the rest of it, what are the other typical applications for this technology, virtual reality, that uh, people who aren't gamers, who aren't interested in doing that, but who are always up for an interesting experience. So you're suggesting in seniors' homes, for example, that uh, residents can enjoy a virtual reality vacation without uh, traveling too far. That would be one of the uh, possible applications and the one that is being is being used indeed, yeah, to give people uh, experience of, of traveling to different places, to looking at, you know, going to historic sites, for example, things in, in all in the uh, simulated virtual world. So there's, there's, there's many different uh, applications from gaming through, as, uh, as Michael was referring to with uh, fighter pilots, it can be used for training for mm-hmm. these sorts of purposes uh, and, and for regular entertainment i think the regular entertainment market hasn't really been fully tapped where you can have immersive theater experiences that sort of thing um, but also for um taking people on as you suggest vacations and and being able to experience um being in far off places without actually having to travel which is uh, something that quite a lot of us would like to be able to do a lot more of right now oh, exactly. in, this, uh, in this particular situation indeed yeah. My- michael jenkin are are the uh, is are there medical applications for virtual reality technology well, certainly, and in fact, there's many companies in Canada uh, looking at exactly that particular part of the part of the problem. So, um, in fact, Lawrence and I are involved in a project right now that is doing this with with people with vestibular damage. And so, you have, but to take a particular example, you may have a an exercise that you that you have to do um, as part of some uh, physiotherapy. Okay. And one of the things you can do with virtual reality is, you know, present people with different worlds in which they do that exercise. But because the device has to monitor you in order to generate the virtual display that, that you're going to see in this um, VR experience, the, the technicians, the, the, the practitioners who are actually applying the, you know, making you do this exercise, they can um, obtain really good data about how you're actually performing the exercise. So they can actually not only make the exercise more interesting, but they can actually make it more effective because they can collect data about how you were performing in that exercise. Ah, and and if it needs to be modified to enhance performance, slowed down, sped up, whatever, those adjustments could be made literally on the fly. Absolutely. And so what what you're seeing is technology that used to be, I mean, if you go back just a few years, say 10 years in, in the VR technology, the technology was much more bulky and much more expensive. 
And now um, there are a number of commodity companies, uh, Oculus and others, that are producing VR technology in the under 500 U.S. uh, per person technology, which is the point where you can deploy it in a much larger scale to a much larger set of people than you could just 10 years ago. Interesting. Now, Lawrence Harris, I'm going to put you to work in a few minutes to to connect the dots with the respect to older people's perception of motion and how uh, there's a difference between a a 50-year-old's perception and a 20-year-old's perception and how designers need to uh, accommodate those differences. Joined on the line from Toronto by Michael Jenkin, who is a professor in the Department of Electrical Engineering and Computer Science at York University, and his colleague Lawrence Harris, who is a professor in the Department of Psychology at York University. Both these gentlemen, along with other teammates, have been working on a virtual reality experiment and working on a project that during the efforts have discovered, among other things, and this to you, Lawrence Harris, is the fact that the future of virtual reality technology may lie in understanding how older people process or perceive motion. So, Professor Harris, is it as simple as older people's brains simply can't keep up to what the brain of a 20-year-old can, or do older people simply process information differently because they know how to? Well, that's an interesting question, and we're not really in a position to be able to answer completely yet at all, partly because we haven't got a huge amount of research on the perception Uh, processes of of older people. But uh, it's definitely not because their brains are not able to keep up. It's more to do with the processing of the information and their ability to expect uh, certain things to to happen. So when you move forwards, you expect the world relative to you to move backwards, and you expect all sorts of sensory information that comes uh, from your different sense organs as as you move. And it's the way that those are put together that may be different or may change with, with age. Aha. So that uh, as people get more experience, they know how to put these things together um, in a different way, in a better way, in a more predictive way. And this sometimes can be a problem. Interesting. Now, Michael Jenkins, back to this experiment you conducted with all of those willing volunteers at the Ontario Science Centre. You had hundreds of people come into your area, put on this virtual reality device, sitting down on a chair, and then you took all of these hundreds of volunteers on exactly the same little virtual reality journey through lollipop land. How long did, how long did the actual visual piece last? Well, so that's that's actually one of the really interesting questions here. So if you take, so traditionally when these experiments are done, they're done with a smaller group of people and they're willing to sit there for a longer period of time. Right. And so people visiting the Science Museum, the Science Center in Toronto, um, they're not willing to do that. So we had to make the experiment very short, as short as we possibly could. So the entire period of time from arriving at the exhibit and being trained on what you're going to do and, and then actually doing it mm-hmm. and then being thanked for doing it was very short. So certainly less than 10 minutes, but that kind of number depending on the person. Okay, so so that's start to finish. Uh, you're in and you're gone in, in less than 10 minutes. And the actual right. v- uh, visual experience that you were being monitored for was clearly what, in the sort of four to five minute range then? That's right. And it's, it's broken down into smaller um, components. And so as we're actually measuring each person as they do something and that we're waiting for their response, 
the actual time for each person would be different. So some people would take longer. Um, it, so you're, you're uh, perceiving a particular stimulus, the motion through the space, and then you're, you are asked in an indirect way a question about how you've moved through that space. And depending on how you answer, it could take a little longer, a little less. But, um, but yes, the idea was to be sufficiently quick that, we, uh, uh, that the people were still enjoying being uh, subjects or participants before the experiment ended. Yeah, I went to the science center. You know, it was just kind of a holiday thing with a family. And gosh, we were suddenly part of a science experiment. It was really cool. I'm sure that, that was a lot of feedback from a lot of people. So tell me something, Michael. When people do these things, these virtual reality exercises, and, mm-hmm. and so you're sitting on a chair, and what you're seeing with this device strapped on your face is you're floating through through space and there's a bunch of random lollipops that pop up and disappear and you're sort of navigating your way through this maze as you're sitting on the chair watching this thing do you actually physically move so your body remains seated in the chair so you'll notice i didn't answer quite the same question you asked so the the physically you you are you are stationary relative to the chair okay but visually you're moving so uh-huh. but 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 this is the same sort of, you know, if you're in a, uh, you can be in many environments where you're physically stationary, like a, a very large screen movie, for example, mm-hmm. and you may feel you're being moved and um, you aren't really being moved. You're actually sitting in the chair, uh, but that your uh, perceptual system has to take in all the information that you're receiving, some of which are this visual field that says you're moving and some of it is the fact that you are actually just sitting there and, and not physically moving and make sense out of it. And sometimes the sense it'll make out of it is that you're sitting in a chair and not moving. For example, if the display was black. Right. And sometimes the display may be very evocative and you may think you're moving. And some combination of the two, of course. Interesting. Now, you, you have a technical term. Well, it, it sounds kind of technical. Jiggle. If you move your head, like you're coming along and, oh, there's a lollipop. Oh, it's going to get me. And, and you actually physically move your head to one side or the other to dodge that bullet, so to speak. That's called a jiggle. And there was a fair bit of that, wasn't there? Well, so in the experiment that we're, we're dealing with, we made sure that none of the lollipops actually hit you. Okay. So you're basically on like a... Uh, 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 you know, a, uh, um, uh, a roadway, a straight roadway, and the lollipops are to the left and the right of you. So we, and in fact, we deliberately tried to keep people from moving their head because ah. we, so that you were looking down the middle. But what, what was happening was that the, um, so if you're generating motion in virtual reality, the most obvious thing is you just move straight. And if you just move straight, that's not as effective, it turns out, as actually having your head uh, make small motions vertically going up and down so as though the road was bumpy mm-hmm. or um, small motions left to right as though you were walking. So when you walk, because we're bipedal, we our head sways a little bit to the left and the right as yep. we walk. And so it turns out other people have done this many times before us, that if you add those those cues, which they call jitter to the to the motion, then what happens is people actually perceive, or under certain circumstances, they perceive that they're actually moving farther or faster or better, if you'd like, than if you just move straight down the hallway. So I just blew the big scientific term. I called it jiggles, <laughs> and it's, in fact, jitters. Well, way to go, Sterling. Way, way, to, way to lock it in with the guys at York. Way to connect. Uh, Lawrence, uh, talk about the design aspect of all of this, because the, the, the title of the piece that brought you this whole thing to our attention is The Future of Virtual Reality Technology May Lie in Understanding How Older People 
perceive motion. This is all about designing virtual reality for future projects to include the uh, older people's uh, different approach or different processing capabilities. How's that going to work for designers? What sort of information are you going to be able to feed to designers for the future? Well, as, as, as we've been talking about, the idea about virtual reality is to, is to make you feel that you're somewhere else. Mm-hmm. To make, in other words, to give you the stimulation that you would normally get if you were in a different place or doing a different thing. And it, because of the differences that we're just beginning to understand uh, across age, between younger people through to older people, those need to be taken into account if you're going to make those particular people feel completely immersed or you know, have the full experience that you want them to experience. Got it. So, so if the vision, and because, they're, because as we've been talking about so far, they tend to be sitting still mm-hmm. rather than actually walking along, uh, you know, some Paris street or something like that. You want, to, you want them to feel that they are actually moving and exploring a, a different environment. And it may be, our initial experiments are beginning to indicate that the uh, perceptions that you get for, like, for the same stimulus may be different with people with different ages. Interesting stuff. And so, Sorry. Yeah, and so that needs to be taken into account when you're making a simulation. So the, for future programmers, this is just more data to make their programs even more, A, appealing, and B, more effective. Exactly. Interesting stuff. Gentlemen, before I let you go, Michael, to you first. The big question burning the airwaves of Vancouver Radio this morning. It is Halloween, after all. And I, I know I blew jitters and jingles. and But what I'm after right now, and you guys have seen a few, I'm sure, over the years. What do you think is the scariest movie ever made? Oh, I like The Shining. <laughs> it's way up there on the list. How about That's you, Lawrence? Uh I'm not an expert at all. I have very little experience, but I do like the older uh, psycho-type movies from uh, uh, Alfred Hitchcock. Aha! Now, you see, that's our our overnight producer, Matt MacArthur. That was exactly what he said first. Anything from Hitchcock, especially psycho. I'm not much of a Mm -hmm. horror movie fan myself. It has never been my idea of of entertainment to sit down, especially pay hard-earned after-tax money, to have some clever director scare the living bejeepers out of me to the point where I'm (laughs) won't sleep well for weeks it's never been my idea of a good time (laughs) but on halloween we all make concessions don't we lawrence and michael thank you gentlemen so much for being with us this morning this is fascinating work uh please keep in touch i'd like to talk more about it well thank you thanks for having us a real pleasure gentlemen michael jenkin and lawrence harris from york university in toronto the virtual virtual reality technology uh, advances it just advances and yes it's a jitter if you move not a jiggle here's a headline that really caught our attention a couple of days ago as andrew and i were discussing putting the show together bc group hoping to launch flying passenger drones by 2025. Turns out this group is mostly on Vancouver Island, and one of the big players in the group is our own Helijet Airways. So I said, hey, I know the guy who runs Helijet Airways. Talked to him on the radio a couple of years ago. He's a good guy. Let's call him up and find out what's going on. And by gosh, Danny Sitnam did agree to get up early on a Saturday morning to talk about flying passenger drones by 2025. Danny Sitnam is the CEO of Helijet Airways. Good morning and welcome back, Danny. Hey, good morning, Sterling. How are you? I'm well. Uh, fine. 
I'm, I'm well, thanks, and happy Halloween to you. By the way, I'm going to hit you with the big question. we got a couple of minutes talking here. You don't need to answer it right now unless you have one right off the top of your head. But before we finish our conversation, I would like you to tell us what you think is the scariest movie of all time. But you don't have to do it right now if you're not ready for it. No, I'll, I'll, I'll pass on that. Next question. Okay, next question. <laughs> Passenger drones by 2025. First of all, this comes from, is this the same outfit, Danny, that we talked about, oh, I guess, geez, about a year or so ago, that they, they were working out of Nanaimo at that time, and the project then was to fly prescriptions by drone to individuals on the Gulf Islands who can't exactly jump in the car and zip down to the corner drugstore to get a prescription done. Is it the same group, Danny? Well, you know, Sterling, uh, uh, not really. Um, Interrobotics is the company that uh, uh, I know very well on the island uh, in the Salt Spring area, and they're doing some great things with drone uh, uh, technologies and transfers. Interrobotics is a member of the new consortium that we have formed, uh, and they're adding a lot of value into it. So it's really a consortium of groups. Okay, so it's the Canadian Advanced Air Mobility Consortium, right? That is correct. Okay, so where does Helijet factor into that group, Danny? Well, so, so the group is really a, a good cross-section of academia, um, operations, um, um, schooling, and so forth, meaning that we have BCIT, we have UVic, we have UBC, we have the City of Vancouver, we have uh, Minister of Transportation Infrastructure, and we are the sole air operator, we'll say, involved. So we bring some value as far as boots on the ground sure. and trying to operate this technology. So well, and I suppose also just that whole practical aspect, because uh, the, in theory, this might look good, and in theory, this might be, but in practice, and back to the boots on the ground and paying customers, real people aren't necessarily mm-hmm. going to want to put up with this, whatever that may be. And that's the, the angle that you can bring to most conversations, right? That's right. Yeah, we're just trying to uh, bring in the practicality, the the reality, and the uh, the acceptance of the vehicles and the technology that may be coming in the near future. So exactly, Danny, what have you got up your sleeve? How are you going to get people droned around Vancouver Island? Yeah, well, that it, it's a complex question, Sterling. Um, it it that's what we're here is to learn what we have to do, and uh, in turn educate the communities, the stakeholders that may be involved in this one day. Um, But the reality is uh, we have a fairly, uh, I'll say, mature market that's quite accustomed to flying vertical takeoff, which is really the helicopter in layman's Mm -hmm. terms. And we don't think the transition going into the vehicle is going to be uh, a a big uh, transition for the existing market that uses, say, uh, groups like Helijet. I, I think the issue here is about infrastructure and trying to get the rest of the community that otherwise doesn't travel by air to understand that this is going to be a more sustainable, more economical way to travel as opposed to a helicopter or any other conventional type of uh, uh, aviation. Because the whole idea is to get the operating cost down significantly lower, but also be sustainable and more acceptable to communities that have these uh, these 
vehicles traveling over your head. Well, it's a kind of a Jetsons thing to it all, too, you know. And yet I saw a, a, a story on a European newscast a couple of days ago, Danny, that, that, that featured a flying car. Very Jetson-like stuff, right? Uh, right. This, this is a, a prototype that might be available uh, for mass consumption in a couple of years coming out of the Netherlands. The original uh, version is going to cost you $600,000. That's an expensive uh, Ferrari. looking like a bargain beside one of those. But the idea being the individual personal air transport vehicle, that's what the Jetsons planted in our brains back in the 60s. 60s and 70s for crying out loud and 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 we keep we, we've always had that in the back of our minds that kind of well, something you could literally just lift you up off your property zip you over to where you need to go and place you right down in front of whatever it is you're you're, you're going to do and that's the that's the convenience aspect that you and your colleagues on Vancouver Island are trying to exploit correct that's right, Sterling. It's it's uh, you know it, the the vision is still a little you know out there you know to 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 visualize what you've just explained. But I think the the starting point is really just uh, uh, testing the vehicles, uh, putting some case studies together, uh, and it starts with drones and drones technology and growing and scaling up that technology where one day it can carry passengers or cargo or large cargo movements. And, and I think it, it's a transitional thing. I think what you'll m- probably see is more hybrid electric starting and then eventually electric or hydrogen-fueled vehicles. Well, you know, and, and the drone technology uh, alone is just absolutely mind-boggling, Danny, because, of course, there's this new household version now that uh, uses a, a, a receptacle about the size of, of a, a, a large can, and it, it has a miniature drone with a camera in it that can fly anywhere in your house or, or where you, wherever you are and give you a picture of that area of your house while you're sitting on the comfy couch not moving. Now, that's pretty sophisticated technology for inside a person's residence. But it's the same principle that applies regardless of where the vehicle is flying and what it's carrying, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's fascinating technology and and, and becoming miniature, as you say, you know, uh, buzzing around in your house and, uh, you know, who knows where it can go. But I suppose that you must take enormous encouragement from that type of technology, Danny, simply because look what's being done here inside the house. Now, imagine if we had actual real people-sized versions of that to work with. A, it would be a whole lot easier, I would think, to work on. And also, uh, it's still equally challenging, right? Absolutely. Um, You know, the big challenges will be integration into the airspace, the existing airspace, and how it will be navigated and how it will be, you know, managed uh, with existing regulations and so forth. So that that will always be the the lag time, I'll call it. Uh, You know, technology is probably there. The regulatory body is always about two or three or four years behind Mm -hmm. the technology. So. We'll have, they'll have to catch up to, to build proper regulations. Ah, but of course it will help if you've got the, that wide spectrum of participants as you have because a regulator can't ignore an offering from something that represents that huge a sector of the community. Now, can they? That's right.
That's right. I mean, it, you know, the market will drive this at the end of the day, and and everyone will follow. Sterling Fox with you, joined on the line by Danny Sitnam, the CEO of Helijet Airways here in Vancouver. That company is part of the Canadian Advanced Air Mobility Consortium. Uh, they had a press conference a few days ago and announced plans to make vertical flying passenger drone technology a reality. Uh, 2025 is the deadline year, Danny. Any particular reason for that one? Well, I think, you know, Sterling, uh, that's, uh, that's uh, an approximate date. I mean, it'll be plus or minus and very difficult really to pin it right now. Sure. But I, I would think in the next uh, three to five to ten years, depending on the, uh, the specific technologies and configurations. So with the idea, I, I'm just I'm just trying to understand the, the one one part of it because uh, when we talked about this uh, on a different uh, sort of scale a year or so ago, we were talking with a company that was dropping off prescriptions on people's properties. They would take a prescription, load it on a drone, the drone would fly out to that person's residence, and the prescription would be delivered to that individual. That's a, a doable thing because prescriptions don't weigh very much, and the drone required to deliver said prescription would be fairly lightweight. Now, when you're talking about packing people around, you're talking about a whole different power plant. How do you propose or what size vehicle do you intend to use? Yeah, so a lot of the uh, the manufacturers, and there's over like over 200 designer manufacturers right now that are developing uh, electric or hybrid electric or hydrogen-fueled uh, vehicles that can carry passengers or or cargo, and they're they're operating within the the vicinity of three to four passenger capacity, right oh. up to ten or twelve passenger. Okay, and and a lot of it is depending on how many nacelles or 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 electric motors with with electric fans or blades are are being installed, uh, going through all of the aerodynamics and all of the wind tunnel testing. But um, you know when you have big manufacturers like Bell Helicopters or Airbus or Leonardo, you know, world leaders in in vertical technology. I mean, the, the technology is there. It's just trying to apply it, uh, you know, in a design mode. Um, you know, it, I, I think the big issue, is, as you probably know, is really battery endurance. Yes, uh, that is is limiting the endurance of the aircraft, um, and that's being worked on and and worked on very hard. And, and I think that's what's taking time to. Well, uh, to it also makes 2025 make more sense, Danny, because, of course, the, the, the battery capability is what e-vehicles of all descriptions are about. And there are just teams the world over right now working on expanded battery capacity. So your timing on this project is outstanding because between now and 2025, a lot of those issues are going to be resolved by people we've never heard of before. Right. Yeah, you know it, what's really interesting is the, uh, you know, within the consortium and around the consortium, the people that are really deeply involved in this new technology, this what we call eVTOL, electric vertical takeoff and landing technology, is the car manufacturers. Yeah, I mean Hyundai and uh, GM are very big players, putting a lot of uh, capital behind it to uh, resolve and, and come up with solutions for battery technology. Interesting stuff. Well, it's a fascinating project. It's very uh, uh, very out there of you and your colleagues at this particular Canadian Advanced Air Mobility Consortium. Danny, we wish you considerable success, but we're absolutely not going to let you go until we find out your, your take on, yeah. the, on the scariest movie of all time. <laughs> 
Well, you know, maybe not scary in the uh, in the conventional way, but I, I would say one of the, the most intense uh, movies that uh, kind of scared me was uh, the remake of uh, the old Cape Fear oh, with Robert De Niro. Yes. I thought that one was uh, was a nail-biter. <laughs> good stuff. <laughs> well, thanks for being a good sport and jumping in with us too, Danny. We appreciate that. And, and great to hear from you. It's been a couple of years since we had a chat. Let's, yeah. not, let's not leave it that long to the next one because this is promising yeah. stuff and it's also very exciting. We wish you considerable success and we'll bug you for an update pretty soon. Thank you so much, Sterling. All the very best and happy Halloween. There you go. Same to you. Danny Sitnam, CEO of HellaJet Airways. Our guest is the executive director of Creating Accessible Neighborhoods. Here to talk about, well, accessibility legislation as possibly to be provided by the brand new NDP majority government. Heather McCain is on the line. Heather, good morning and welcome. Good morning. Thank you. Happy Halloween to you. Uh, talk, to, talk to us a little bit about, first of all, if you don't mind, take a second or two, Heather, and tell us about Creating Accessible Neighborhoods, your organization. How long have you been around? We've been around since 2005, and I founded I Am a Person with a Disability and recognized that there was not enough representation within communities as well as uh, continually running into accessibility issues, and so I created this organization that is employed by and for disabled people. Okay. Now, there was a headline from our friends over at the TAI a couple of days ago, Heather, that brought this whole thing to our attention, because the headline said the pandemic proves the need for NDP's promised accessibility laws. And it goes on to say, advocates say legislation will provide the teeth and encouragement to remove barriers for people with disabilities. So how, Heather, has the pandemic proven this need? Well, I would specify that the pandemic has proven the need for people who are not disabled. For disabled people, we have known of the need for accessibility our, <laughs> our entire lives. Of course, um, right. It's trying to get non-disabled people to understand the issues. And, for example, sidewalks are a big issue for people with disabilities. And now that people are supposed to be socially distancing, they're realizing that our cities are very much created with the vehicle as the priority and not the pedestrian and so having situations such as where someone has to step off of the curb in order to avoid someone, there's no curb ramps for someone who's in a mobility device to right. be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, also, we are hoping that the legislation will have teeth. It's one of the biggest concerns within the disability community is that we're concerned that it will be voluntarily um, run and so there'll be voluntary compliance as there was in Ontario and so we really need um, that legislation to have teeth and to have accessible ways for people with disabilities to be able to report Um, but also the government should be the ones that are implementing it and not putting the onus on disabled people to report it they should be checking in with businesses to ensure that they are following whatever the legislation looks like. Interesting stuff. Now, Heather, there's a bit of confusion evolving from those remarks simply because there are quite a few people listening here right now who assume, obviously erroneously, that such legislation already exists. Yes, and unfortunately there isn't. Ontario was the first province to have accessibility legislation. Um, We are covered by the Charter of Rights. Mm Mm-hmm. 
um, and also Canada ratified the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, which protects our right to equity and non-discrimination. But we need these rights embedded in provincial legislation. And currently, the process for declaring discrimination is an inaccessible, onerous um, process that takes up years of people's lives as well as requires someone to have a lot of financial um, ability. Sure. So does, is there, for example, one thinks of uh, accessibility uh, ramps and various other obvious uh, changes that have been made over time. But Heather, uh, are those changes, uh, ramps and so on, are they voluntary or up until this point, have they been obligatory? So within the BC building code, there are some things like having an elevator that uh, in a building that has more than one floor. And so there are some that are built in, but it's, it's not a lot. Um, and this is the problem is the inconsistency. People with disabilities cannot count on accessibility. And part of it also is that if a building has already been made, there's no requirement sure. for them to retrofit. Right. Okay. So now, has the has, had the government prior to the provincial election, uh, with their, what, two and a half or three years uh, of, of cooperating with the Greens, had they made any improvements in this area? And had they, for example, uh, drafted anything that looked like it could be legislation? The list this leading up to the second half of the question, Heather, which is now that they're a majority and there are no impediments to getting things done, is there likely to be accessibility legislation? So in November of last year, the province did accessibility legislation consultations throughout the province. Right. One of the concerns from the disability community is those consultations were not set up in an accessible way. (laughs) And so we had venues that were not accessible. We had formats that were not accessible to people who were blind. The process for community organizations who did their own consultations, the way the packages were created were not accessible. Uh, My organization wrote a letter regarding this to the provincial government, um, and I think about six other organizations signed on as well. So they have done accessibility legislation consultations with the community, and we received one follow-up after that just kind of saying thank you, but then silence since. Now, during the election, they announced that they were going to pass the accessibility legislation, their first time back at the legislation. Um, Our concern is that we don't know what that looks like. And we, the disability community was very vocal in saying that it's not enough to have legislation. We actually need legislation that is effective. And so I think that the consultation needs to continue with the disability community. And I think that there is definitely concern from people with disabilities about the way the consultations were set up and that who set up those uh, meetings are the ones who are creating the legislation. And (laughs) It would lead someone to be a little, uh, I think, cynical. uh, If, for example, you're a member of the disability community and you've been invited to a consultation process that is not accessible, so you can't actually participate because you can't get in uh you would be a little uh, though the individuals who sent you that invitation responsible ultimately for drafting the legislation i, I would be a little cynical about uh, about the credibility of those individuals have have you had any uh subsequent to the 
to the process, the consultation process, and he's, I'm using air quotes as I say this, Heather, but subject, subsequent to that, has there been any uh, correspondence that would lead you to believe there might be a, 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 a revisiting of the consultation process, or is that over and done? I believe that's over and done. We talked with them after we sent our letter, and um, both the organization who supported the government and the government itself contacted us and said that, um, you know, they would keep our points in mind going forward and that they would follow up. And we have not heard anything from them since. Um, now, it would be great if the NDP did live up to their, uh, you know, election promise of moving the legislation forward. Um, but I think it's going to be an ongoing process because we'll have to see what the legislation looks like and if the disability community is going to push for changes. Okay, so again, the process is far from over. Heather, I, I want to take the conversation. I got two questions left for you. One is about the scariest movie you think has ever made. And the, but between now and then, you have you, you're a person. You're a walker. You have disabilities. You said some are invisible. And you know we're seeing a lot of tension these days in our community, Heather, especially on public transit and other venues like that where people are judging and 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 leaping to conclusions about each other because we're not wearing a mask on a, on a sky train or whatever. And people are getting the confrontations about all of this. And, and some people's disabilities, Heather, are invisible. Some yeah. people can't wear a mask because they can't wear a mask. So talk to us about invisible disabilities for a moment, if you would, please. So it's estimated that about 93% of disabilities are invisible. And I think when people think of disability, they think of the disability symbol, which is a stick figure in a wheelchair. Mm -hmm. But the truth is that the majority of people with disabilities, you cannot um, look at someone and assume whether they are disabled or not. And so that discrimination is very tough to live with. Um, As you mentioned, it it affects people who can't wear the mask. It also affects people who are unable to stand up in line, waiting outside of Costco, um, but they don't have a mobility device. And so they don't physically look like they can. Right. It also is really affecting people who are deaf and hard of hearing who can't understand what people are saying if they are a lip reader because the masks of are course. covering the mouth. Sure. Um, and so there's a lot of ongoing issues. Unfortunately, however, the pandemic, you know, is is creating discrimination for some people who maybe previously have not experienced it, or for the disability community, that discrimination has been ongoing. Mm -hmm. And it's frustrating that the pandemic has increased it, but the fact is the pandemic is just showing the inequities that already existed. Yeah, good point, and I I thank you for dealing with it. Okay, before I let you go, it's it's the buzz line question, Heather. Uh, (laughs) What do you think is the scariest movie ever made? I don't watch scary movies. Neither do I. I hate them. I absolutely hate them. But you know, I would go with Silence of the Lambs, Lambs rather, because okay. it it just completely, completely turned me inside out. It yes, wasn't a I... horror movie. It was pretty intense, though. I got to tell you. How about you? Yes, I've seen enough of Anthony Hopkins' performance in that to say that that would be very scary. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for being a good sport at playing along with us. And thanks very much for getting up and, and joining us with this. This is very important stuff. And as we go forward and perhaps get a little closer to actual legislation, Heather, you and I are going to have to do this again. 
Sounds good. Heather McCain is the executive director of Creating Accessible Neighborhoods. You can Google them. They're a, a, a local outfit. The moon is all of a sudden in the news a lot again. Within the last couple of weeks, we've learned, for example, that there is evidence of water being available to some extent on the moon. This has been received as very positive news for those who would plan to go there. One person who is planning at least to go there in spirit is Eric Dupuis. Mr. Dupuis is the director of the Space Exploration Development with our Canadian Space Agency, and he is, along with many others, partly responsible for two Canadian technologies which will go to the moon next time there's a trip. Eric Dupuis, good morning. Good morning to you. How are you this morning? I'm very well, thank you, Mr. Dupuis. You're joining us from Quebec City this morning, Eric. And before we get to the Canadian technologies that are going to the moon, it's Halloween, and we've been doing this massive survey of West Coast listeners here this morning, asking our listeners what they think is the scariest movie ever made. You've had a chance to, I'm sure, hear a little bit of this in the background. Do you have a contribution to make in that regard, Eric? Sure. The scariest movie for me ever was The Circle. Ah. This scared me shitless. Oh, my gosh. The Circle. Okay. Another one on the list. So tell us about the, first of all, how excited were you and the colleagues at the Canadian Space Agency when the news came of the molecule discovery on the surface of the moon that provided some evidence of some water? This is very exciting for us because... You know, we're going to the moon with uh, astronauts eventually. Uh, Having water on the surface of the moon is actually one of the most precious resources. And we're also seeking water on the surface of Mars. So that's been a very common thread in our science exploration of the solar system. And it, it, it doesn't mean, for, and as I, I did a little homework on the, um, the discovery of the molecule, and, and though there may indeed be access to some form of water, it suggests that it's, it's uh, much more scarce than the Sahara Desert. It represents a bit of a technical challenge, doesn't it? Absolutely. On the surface of the moon, what they found, it's, it's extremely dry. What you have is hydrated minerals that do contain some water molecules uh-huh. attached to them. Uh, on the surface of Mars, you'd probably get a lot more. And at the lunar poles, you're probably going to find a lot more than what they found recently. Interesting. So all of which points to the, uh, the return to the moon as a very likely uh, event. Do we have a timeline? The Canadian Space Agency, of course, cooperates internationally, Eric. Is there a, a specific uh, planetary timeline for the next human adventure to the moon? Well, before we talk about humans, let's talk about the payloads that we're going to send very soon. Because the Canadian Space Agency has this Lunar Exploration Accelerator Program, or LEAP, uh, that's going to invest $150 million over the next four or five years to prepare Canada for participation in the lunar economy and the return to the moon. So what we're doing, and you saw the latest news release, uh, right now we've selected a couple of technologies uh, to fly to the moon under uh, a call where basically we were seeking technologies that are basically ready to go, and all they need is the little push to get a flight to the moon. Okay. Because in the space business, flying is everything. Once you've flown, basically you can sell your product over and over again because people will believe in it. Mm-hmm. 
So for these, we're going to fly these technologies to the moon by 2024 uh, or earlier. So we have two Canadian companies that have been selected. One is NGC Aerospace, which is in Quebec, and the other is Canadensis Aerospace in Ontario. Okay. And they're going to build pieces. They have technologies that are ready to go. Canadensis has this uh, 360-degree camera that allows you to get a total view of the world. And they have several flights lined up for this tiny camera. And we intend to send it to the moon on a lander platform so that they can take images at the surface. And NGC Aerospace, what they have is basically a positioning system that guides spacecraft as they descend to the surface and make sure that they land at the right place and avoid obstacles on the way down. Oh, oh, okay, because it's kind of been hit and miss. I mean, we haven't had any accidents or anything, but it hasn't been, it, it, it's been lucky as much as anything else up to this point, hasn't it? Well, there have been accidents on the surface of the moon, not, not with the human programs, but some of the recent probes uh, going to the moon have That's shown right. us how difficult mm-hmm. it is. So we need to make sure that we have the right landing system and this company, NGC Aerospace, is recognized as one of the world leaders uh, for guiding spacecrafts during landing. How quickly you mentioned flying is what it's all about. Once you get up there and, and you can prove your technology, then it's suddenly very marketable. How soon do these two technological innovations, how soon do you plan to have them on the moon? Well, the plans we're looking at is flying them by 2023 or 2024. So it's just a couple of years away, mm-hmm. and we have the, the call through which we've selected these technologies is still open. We're going to select more technologies in the months to come, and more will fly because we have, we have the fund to bring many more technologies to the surface of the moon. And are we? Are you lucky, Eric, in a, to be in a position where you have the capacity to deliver more technologies to the moon, and now it becomes simply a, a choice of selecting which ones from a very long lineup of eligible candidates? Well, we know there are a lot more candidates uh, that are applying. We just received another set of proposals a couple of weeks ago. Good. And we've also just recently announced that we're going to be sending a Canadian rover to the moon, uh, and that rover will have scientific instruments on board. It'll have uh, Canadian science instruments and U.S. science instruments. And because we're hosting American instruments, we're actually getting the launch for free. So we provide the rover. Our American friends are providing the launch, and uh, we have this joint mission that's going to make science measurements on the surface of the moon. Interesting stuff. A lot to be said for international cooperation, particularly uh, uh, when it's away from planet Earth. Eric Dupuy, thank you so much for doing this with us this morning. It's, it's a significant development. And as you gather more technology to send to the moon, let's have an opportunity to, uh, to talk again and discuss uh, what else is going to go for a ride. We appreciate your being with us today. Thank you. It will be my pleasure to talk to you again. Eric Dupuis is Director of Space Exploration Development at the Canadian Space Agency in Montreal. Joined us today from Quebec City.
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone. Like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.